Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. So today we're going to be doing another episode centered around the topic of what reality is and how we can know anything about anything. And we're basing it heavily on this uh, little interview with this quantum chemist, Lothar Schaefer, who's a professor at the University of Arkansas. And this is on uh, this PBS program, Closer to Truth, that has a lot of uh, really cool interviews on on topics like this. disclaimer that we're just two musicians and teachers who like to talk about a bunch of subjects that are slightly beyond us if we say anything that's factually inaccurate please uh send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and let us know where we messed up we always like to be learning things so trevor yes (laughs) (laughs) what is ultimate reality well, I, I would say that that question doesn't necessarily have to have an answer because hmm. they're they're just words that we're saying using a human language and they don't have to necessarily <laughs> refer refer to something. Um kind of like uh <laughs> um like like the question what what was before the beginning of the universe? Mm. That question might all in a similar way be meaningless because we can apply the word before to a bunch of things in our in our daily lives and and in our normal existence but that word doesn't necessarily map on to to how things work in the in the bigger picture interesting so in this interview lokar schaefer talks about how the ancient greeks came up with the idea of atoms um, which is just that you divide matter into smaller and smaller pieces until eventually you get to that smallest piece that you can't divide anymore would you say that looking for such a limit would that be akin to looking for a definitive answer to the question what is the ultimate reality no no i don't think it would be and actually this one thing this video kind of cleared clarified for me is that again i think it's a it's a case of us wanting to find something that's not really there and that hmm. because because we have this this perception that everything's made of smaller things and at some point there must be a smallest thing that things are made of mm-hmm. and if that's what you think, then you just you do get an infinite regress that just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. 
and there's there's no bottom right it's, it's turtle it's turtles all the way down yeah how, how does that happen how does that happen yeah i, I don't know that's a big question <laughs> uh, but i just wondering if you could elaborate on that point a little well bit. i think that's that's kind of what he's saying he says uh he says when you get down to actual atoms there are a surface without a background yes yeah this is a cool <laughs> idea uh, so let's back up a second because we're starting to get into the things he talks about so let's start at the beginning of the discussion and let's go through statement by statement and we'll talk about it that way cool so she starts up uh, by saying that there are four fundamental characteristics of what he calls ultimate reality um this is, as I would interpret it, like trying to understand what is the fundamental nature of reality or of existence. Um, and these four characteristics are that it has to be non-material, non-empirical. It speaks to the wholeness of the universe as if everything is interconnected and that it is mind-like. Yeah. Non-material, non-empirical. It speaks to the wholeness of the universe and it's mind-like. Yeah. Yeah, so so that first one is kind of what I'm what I was talking about. At at some level when you unless you're going to have this kind of infinite regress, you have to get to some level where you're not talking about material anymore, you're talking about patterns or waves or information. Yeah. Cool. So so let's let's walk there. Um so starting out, we have this uh, Greek idea of atomnos, the, the uh, smallest object. Um, and in in the modern understanding, we, we have, uh, I think, a parallel to this idea is the, the Planck length. Mm -hmm. Although I think yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm not going to remember quite what the distinction is. I think that's that's commonly misunderstood as the smallest length possible in the universe it, it's something slightly different hmm could you elaborate <laughs> can, on what something different that i can is? try um i think it might it might just have to do with the, the limitations of what we're able to measure rather than with with something actually actually that's that's fundamental to the universe interesting um, that that is contradictory to how I've heard of it, it talked about before. Okay, so so the first thing is that there are less units and more more constants that are just kind of used to to calculate things. Okay, well I, I take that back. So <laughs> <laughs> so his goal was to Planck's goal in coming up with these units was trying to find something that all civil all civilizations could agree upon like including alien civilizations something that was naturally mm -hmm. discoverable as a, as a as a unit just as a natural consequence of the universe mm -hmm. so my understanding of the Planck length is that at that scale if you were to zoom really really far in this very short distance uh, space-time actually breaks down and it doesn't like like the, the concept of space doesn't make sense 
on, on the scale underneath. And so in that sense, it's the shortest length possible. Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean by the concept of space doesn't make sense? Like uh, what, what you were talking about, about how there's uh, no background on which to view it to, in order for it to make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds that sounds right. <laughs> and we'll elaborate that on that more when we get yeah. there. So he starts out uh, by just making the, the statement before we get into things that you don't really need to know the mathematics of quantum mechanics to understand these concepts. You just have to have like a general idea of how the concepts work. Yeah, that's comforting. That's comforting to hear and nice to hear. I'm not sure I quite believe it. <laughs> But uh -huh. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was Richard Feynman, who was fond of saying that that mathematics is the language of the universe, and and to really, truly understand everything at, at a basic level, you have to know the math. Otherwise, you're just getting kind of approximations, mm. off of approximations, off of approximations that are never going to quite get to the, the core of it. Yeah, and a lot of those can become contradictory. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, that Alan Watts video I sent you, or one of the two, he was talking about how mathematics are often considered in a, a spiritual light. Uh, you know, the, but I could throw some buzzwords at you like sacred geometry. <laughs> yeah, but but really, what what that's referring to is like that one plus two equals three. And that that's true even without having to say what the things are. One what, two what, it doesn't matter. Right. And so right. just like seeing that that framework of, of logic, of mathematical logic, that that is just true, that's kind of fascinating and can even be viewed as spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, people can argue about whether mathematics is invented or discovered, but at some level, I think it has to be woven into the fabric of of how the universe works. Definitely. So he starts now saying that the basis of the material world is non-material. Um, and then he goes on to speak about how the Greeks, Greeks came up with the idea of atoms to divide the world into smaller and smaller parts until you can't divide anymore. Um, this, to me, is also this, m the same understanding that I've come to through reading Michio Kaku's works about quantum mechanics uh, of what the word quantum means. Because quantum is just from quantization, which is to uh, put things on a grid, right? Right, right. It's like... In an atom, you have the electrons that are in their orbitals, and they can't be in between. They just jump between the orbitals instantaneously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, of often misconstrued as, I mean, quantum is often misconstrued as having something to do with randomness or chance or, or something like that, but that's not what the word means, really. Yeah. Which is interesting, uh, on a side note, uh, regarding Michio Kaku, he explains how 
quantum mechanics refers to the view of the world where you look at everything as particles, as being uh, fixed, like, like, like being material. And that when you do that, there's all these sort of funny patterns that appear and things that we can recognize and point to. But that, that is not the same as theoretical physics. And theoretical physics takes the more conceptual view and uh, is based not upon empirical evidence, but on deductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the theoretical part, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of extrapolating from what we know rather than, than basing everything on, on empirical evidence. Yeah, observations, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and these two forms of of thought uh, are directly in opposition and complement each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? I remember Jiokaku <laughs> uh, came to give a talk at CU Boulder, right? When we were there. Did he really? I feel like he. Did I remember seeing posters oh, for no. it? <laughs> oh <laughs> my I, god! I, I can't believe there. I missed that. <laughs> I was and I was reading him at the time as well. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but it was like right uh, at the beginning of our freshman year, like uh, October 2013. <laughs> so, yeah. So all wrapped up in just getting used to being at college. Yeah. What a time. <laughs> uh. Anyway. <laughs> um. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, and it's really dazzling just the, like the sheer number of crazy theories that are out there about what, yeah, what the fundamental nature of everything is. Like, I, I think I've mentioned it before, but um, there's this guy, Lee Smolin, that has this, this idea that every, every black hole is basically creating a universe inside it and that the universe is evolving through the creations of, uh, different universes that have different slightly different parameters based on uh kind of random chance and that they're evolving in this semi-genetic way and favoring universes that produce more black holes yeah <laughs> which is just <laughs> fascinating just so nuts. i mean it kind of makes sense right like if you have a small little pocket universe that can only support so much idea and we'll we'll tie into this later um that that it can only take so many forms that is that there's only only so much that that universe could do but a universe that could encompass more things is more likely to stick around Mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah it would favor something rather than nothing yeah funny how that works (laughs) So, um, uh, non-material. So, the basis of the material world is non-material. So, he says that in a vacuum, a single particle becomes a wave. He makes this assertion. Is is this something that you've heard of before? Uh, maybe not necessarily in a vacuum, but there's the whole wave-particle duality thing where it's it's kind of both. Mm. like the um the the 
I think this was famously shown by the double slit experiment. Yeah. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So the double slit experiment, um, there's a, it's like really, really simple. So it's, it's kind of amazing. There's a, a light that's being shown through these, uh, these two slits in, in a wall. And then uh, whatever is shining through is being project, projected on, on this other wall. And if you think of light as a particle, a certain particle could only travel through one slit at a time, right? So you'd expect these very clear patterns of just, you know, the light showing up in two places on the wall, right? Yeah, it's like a stencil. Yeah, yeah. But what you actually get is this weird interference pattern of of dark bands and light bands, which mm-hmm. implies that basically the, the, the particle is somehow traveling through both slits at the same time. Yeah, well, it, because right, it's like it the the bands pattern that it it creates is the same sort of pattern that you would get by sending a wave through the two slits, right? right. And uh, the wave uh, interacts with with itself uh, as it goes through the two slits, and that creates uh, troughs and peaks, right? Where it lines up or misaligns with itself to create the the pattern, right? Right. Yeah, just like a you'll hear beating if a if two pitches are are slightly out of tune. Mm-hmm. And and this is a concept that really makes a lot of sense to me after having explored around with music and electronic uh experimental live music as much as I have. Mm-hmm. Um but and then the weirdest thing about the double slit experiment that I remember from high school when they taught us um, is that when they send a single photon through the slits at a time, it still shows up in the in the wave pattern. Mm-hmm. And that is what implies that it is weirdly interfering with itself and passing through both places at the same right, time. Right, right, yeah, I forget about that part. That's kind of the kicker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When was that done? Do you know? Like, I forget. Twenties like or something. Really? That early? Let me check. Oh wow. Eighteen oh one. I'm really? glad I looked that up. Yeah. How the hell did they do? Well, that? I mean, it's like I said, it's a pretty simple experiment. Did Did they even have lasers back then? Uh that's a good question. Do you, do you need a laser to do it? I don't know. I've seen it done with lasers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, there's a guy on YouTube who was able to do it with like Legos and little pen lasers. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have thought that we had the technology back then. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to think of, of someone observing like something like that and just being so far from actually understanding what's going on. <laughs> but being able to like glimpse yeah. a little bit into like this field that wow. just took up has taken up just so much of, of twentieth and twenty first century physics. Mm. Kind of beautiful. Yeah, so this non materiality thing or non material thing, right? This is kind of what I was talking about with, with you get this infinite regress. And that if you're just looking for smaller and smaller materials, you're you're not gonna. At a certain point, it's not gonna lead anywhere. 
because mm-hmm. you're you're getting to to pure information or pure patterns or something like that or pure mind. <laughs> so when he says that a single particle in a vacuum becomes a wave, uh, as I understand it, when you have different particles interacting with each other, that is making a measurement of where each of those particles are. So if a particle is in a vacuum, it doesn't make sense to say that it's a particle at all, to say that it's in a particular place, because there's nothing for it to interact with. Huh, that's interesting. Are you saying it's it's indeterminate, or it's it's literally... Yes, it, yeah. it is indeterminate. So uh, as, as he says in this video, it is a wave, and that that is a meaningful concept because it, it's a probability of existing spread out across space. Uh, and, and each spot in space, there is a certain probability that it will exist there. Mm-hmm. But it's not uh, definite. Yeah. Yeah. And technically, it or theoretically, it's, it's spread out over the entire universe. It's just that the probability drops off so low after a certain point that uh-huh. essentially <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not going to be anywhere yeah. too, too far away. <laughs> Probably. <Yeah. laughs> so how, how does that connect to the non-material thing again? So he goes on to say that um, when it's a wave, it does not have units of matter or energy. It's only form, patterns of information. Yeah, that part I, I don't really understand because a wave, as I understand it, would have some kind of energy. Yeah, I'm not sure how that. Well, maybe maybe it's be. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Why why is the term wave used to de- to describe a probability distribution? We may be reaching the limits of our <laughs> understanding and knowledge of quantum. <laughs> yeah, let's let's put a pin in that yeah. one, and for now we'll just take their their word for it that they have good reason to say that these things are true. <laughs> yeah. And again, if we're if we're trying to describe these these high level phenomena of of waves and and particles, we need something more basic like patterns or or information to describe them because we can't keep defining the thing in terms of itself. Yeah, definitely. And then he touches back on elaborating that when he says it's just form, just patterns of information. He also frames that as being just numbers which is the same as what we were talking about before with mathematics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think part of the beauty of that is is that they're not just numbers, they're transient numbers. Transient numbers, what does that mean? Well, because it's constantly changing, right? It's, it's, it's kind of some kind of calculation that's constantly yeah. working itself out. Mm. And kind of getting back to the, the spiritual nature of, of math, I thought that was one of the the really beautiful things Alan Watts was talking about was that um, there's a there's a certain spirituality to transience, and that's part of why mm. why music is one of the most yeah sacred and beautiful forms of art because it's so what's the word it starts with an E not evasive it's so fleeting <laughs> <laughs> Trevor that's an F you missed it in the alphabet. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna think of it in like in like five minutes. Effervescent. Uh, that's that's close. Um, 
God damn it. <laughs> What's the word? <laughs> Elusive? Elusive. Eloquacious. <laughs> Is that a word? I don't know if that's a word. Probably not. <laughs> Loquacious. Loquacious was the word. Uh-huh. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, <laughs> what were we talking about? Um, uh, Alan Watts. <laughs> And how, how music is yeah. spiritual because it's so transient. That's another word for it. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's like it happens and the the perceiving of it in that moment of time is why it happened. And then after that moment of time has passed, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Well, how, how does perceiving come into play? <laughs> well, well, that it... That, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and why why are you creating the music if not to perceive it? Oh yeah, I, I guess if if we're limiting it to to music, then then yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Although I think the metaphor may extend further than that. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's the the non material part. Yeah. So the second thing on his list for fundamental characteristics of ultimate reality is that it is non empirical which he says, you cannot observe it, not even with an instrument. Is he talking about just the limits of how small we can go, or is he saying something? You know, I'm not sure just from that statement. So let's go on one, one statement, and maybe that'll inform us. And, and Luther Schaefer starts by wrapping up what he was talking about regarding the non-material and ties that into the non-empirical. So he starts by talking about how particles in vacuum become a wave and then that wave spreads out in space and so the particle is actually nowhere he says he says it is in a state of probability to find it right and i guess why why the vacuum is important is that it's not interacting with anything right because if yeah, it's in the air yeah, that's that's how i yeah, interpret if it's in the air or in some other medium it's it's interacting with everything that it's moving around with. yeah totally so then he goes on and says when you observe it you collapse this state which is what you're saying anytime it has that interaction um, you know where that particle is now in relation to those other objects mm-hmm. right yeah and it's an it's an interesting question what what we actually mean by look at or measure whether it's just an interaction with something or, or whether I think it's it's commonly misconstrued as as a human measuring it, but it could it could be a bunch of different things that aren't aren't that. Yeah, I I wonder how how could this tie in with what we were talking about before, um, which you had phrased as panpsychism, but we were talking about how uh, fundamentally every particle could be considered as a point of consciousness or, or that is a, a point of perception yeah i don't know if i think about it that way so much as the and you know <laughs> this could be right or not uh or in line with how people think of panpsychism or not but i i always thought of it as more like a field like there's a there's an electron field right and there's mm. uh there, there's fields for kind of uh, you know a bunch of different categories of particles and the particles themselves are you know like wave disturbances in the field um and like concentrated points where the field is more activated and mm-hmm. 
that's kind of how that's kind of my suspicion about consciousness it's not necessarily that it's maybe there's not really a distinction it's not so much intrinsic to the particle itself it's that the particle is activating something within that field somehow hmm interesting although would it make sense to to say that in in a way that the particle is maybe inherent to the field or or is the field rather than being some external thing that is forced upon the field yeah i, I think that's possible and and that seems to be kind of in line with the concept of how a particle can also be a wave mhm depend depending on how depending on how you look at it right and and this this ties into that concept of perception mm-hmm. where to look at it is maybe just to frame it in relation to other matter so let's say you have a single particle that you're trying to figure out where it is and you have a second particle that interacts with it um maybe you could say that from the perspective of the second particle, the first particle can be perceived to be in a particular location um, determined by their interaction. But maybe now let's take another situation where you have a whole world of particles that all function in conjunction to each other, such as our own, and there's a particle and we're trying to figure out where it is in relation to that whole world of particles, then that's like uh, a much more robust perception of the location of that particle. Hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, I think you kind of lost me at the last part there. I think I lost myself <laughs> at the last part there. Um, <laughs> got to go on a long journey on your own yourself (laughs) yeah (laughs) well okay so so it's like you're trying to describe where that first particle is one way you can describe it is as it relates to the other particle another way you could describe it is as it relates to several particles or like a billion trillion gazillion particles Mm -hmm. and that Maybe the latter is a more stable way of representing where that particle is. Because mm-hmm. it's constraining things more. Yeah, there's like a more of a framework for it to uh, relate to. Mm-hmm. And so that there's more sense, more logic in saying that this is there because you have all of these other perceptions of it corroborating that why when we have a very organized and seemingly hierarchical structure like the brain that it that it creates more of a sense of consciousness because it's ordered in such a complex way with so many particles and and all yeah totally yeah in that way that are i buy that 100 percent constraining that everything very specifically yeah Yeah. (laughs) i mean yeah it's, it's fun to think about panpsychism and all this stuff i also think that it's very possible when we get uh quote unquote like an answer to to what consciousness is it'll be pretty mundane um (laughs) or like it won't seem like an answer but that's kind of the best anyone can ever do um 
Yeah. And like, kind of like, I, I was surprised to hear Alan Watts say this because he, he seems to have such a mystical attitude about consciousness and all that stuff. But he was saying that basically it's just a trick the brain does and it's just kind of scanning the environment for for changes, right? Hmm. And that actually we should consider the whole brain as as something that's innately and deeply connected to the rest of the universe. Not just not just the conscious part. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he he kind of approaches it backwards from what what you might expect, right? Like he starts off with it's just matter, like the the brain it's just it's just uh matter, but then he says, "Yeah, but also you 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 are the entire universe." So <laughs> uh <laughs> so that that saying the just part of that suddenly seems to make less sense. Mhm. Yeah, I really, I really like the idea that we're we're direct echoes from the Big Bang, and we're we're direct, yeah. uh, like little vortices that have formed, <laughs> and everything that that's happened since then. Yeah, I love that as well. So for the for the crowd out there, um, <laughs> so we've just switched over. So I, I had sent uh, Trevor a video of Alan Watts in response to this video that he sent me and this video where Alan Watts talks about he uses this metaphor of throwing a bucket of paint at a wall and connecting that to the big bang so in the middle which would be like at the center of the the beginning of the big bang there's just like solid paint but if you go out towards the edges, you get uh, to where the, all the paint, paint spatters uh, interact with the wall in more interesting ways, and you get these interesting splatters and patterns. And, uh, and he connects that to us being evolved, intricate creatures on, on the edge of this expanding bubble of the Big Bang, so that we are those paint squiggles that are doing interesting stuff out on the ed and that we perceive ourselves as being separate from the entire big bang but really we're not mhm yeah we're not separate and also i'm pretty sure most scientists would back that up brains are pretty much the most complicated structure we we know of in the known universe i mean as mm-hmm. as spectacular and amazing as you know galaxies and quasars and black holes and all those things are they they obey you know relatively straightforward rules and and mm. they're yeah the, the brain at least from our perspective and as far as our understanding goes it's it's way 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 more complex than that yeah if you're enjoying what you're hearing so far we hope you'll consider supporting us by either following us on facebook or instagram or subscribing to us on your favorite podcasting platform. We're out there on pretty much everyone at this point. Uh, you can also give us a nice review on one of those, or tell your friends. Give us a hug. Or send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com.
so this is a, a question actually I wanted to ask you about this Alan Watts statement. So where do you think that perception of separation arises from? All right, so you're asking me uh, how I think the sense of separateness arises. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of it is, is we see other people all around us who are, who are having some kind of internal conscious experience and we don't have any access to their experience, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't perceive anything directly beyond what we can perceive with our our five senses. So I think I think we have a we have a we have a sense that we're separate from everything we can't per- perceive directly. Mm. And I think that that's true in a sense. But uh, if if there's ever a point, which I'm sure there will be at some point, where we can beam information directly into our brains from from input sources that are arbitrarily far from from us like on the surface of mars or something or or you know Mm. across the globe in the amazon i think i think that that sense will start to start to dissipate Hmm. well later on in this interview with schaefer he talks about how you cannot see mind you cannot see ideas yeah and so, so maybe that that sounds in line with what you're talking about, and maybe as a more fundamental law than than just happenstance. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's exactly spot on. That was one of the things that really struck me about about the theory he was he was positing that that the atoms have they're empty in a sense, in the same way that that your perception of someone else's mind is empty. That it, it seems like there's there's nothing there or you can't you can't perceive it yeah you couldn't conceivably look at someone's brain and see all of it and then know what they're thinking right right there's there's just a a complete disconnect between between the two not a complete disconnect but but from an outside perspective there's no way to gain access to that uh, internal world again again without without uh without some kind of technological transfer. And I think this is actually something that Ben Grotzel talks about that when we when we have machine or brain computer interfaces and we're actually able to con- uh connect to other people's brains that we'll actually be able to to feel what they they feel and and think what they think. Of course that's going to take some crazy amount of of <laughs> technology, but I think it's I think it's 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 possible. I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. I think it's possible that we can have experiences that seem to approach that experience. But I think I think there may be something more fundamental here about you can't fully know what those forms of the shape of that person's brain mean without being in that brain, being that person, and to be connected to it from an outside source via technology maybe lends some insight but you'll never know the whole of it yeah and and just by the very nature of you accessing it it's going to change it exactly in ways that make it not yeah make it not what the person experiences on their own yeah definitely And i, I think it would be related but not you know not exactly it, it could ever be exactly the same yeah totally yeah that actually gets to some interesting ideas about about free will that um, <laughs> I may be a little bit more skeptical about it, but, but it's possible that um, 
because there, there's this idea that you know if we could measure every every neuron and have a complete picture of of your brain then we could predict everything that you would do mm -hmm. but it's possible that in measuring that one we might destroy the brain and kill the person yeah <laughs> but two two we would probably change it in some way that would create a, a cascading series of effects um yeah which isn't to say that there's no free will necessarily mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, me measuring the, the the state of the entire brain might not be possible without without changing it. That seems very intuitive Apparently. to me. Yeah, even if, if even if you had like a little nano robot at every every synapse that was mm -hmm. beaming back information. Yeah, because because this isn't this just another way of saying what we talked about before? Because the experience, like you were saying, of what it is to be that person is an experience uh, uh, one particular experience um and if you were to add something else to that like like you're saying nanobots perceiving each neuron that is an experience that is a different experience and therefore necessarily discrete a, a separate experience in space-time a separate entity yeah i mean it's separate it's still possible it could be identical i think Hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, there's that question again, right? If it's identical, then is it just the same thing? I think it would have to be the same thing. Again, it's separate, but but if if consciousness is is just information processing, if it doesn't matter what the hardware is. Hmm. Yeah, right. Then it would it would be pretty much the same experience. It's possible the hardware does matter. At oh, some level. Trevor, I can assure you. The hardware does matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the hardware, it's what you do with it. <laughs> as long as it's not software, you know. <laughs> we'll be here all week, guys. <laughs> Firmware that you know. <laughs> It's pretty good. It's... Could be better. <laughs> I could keep making jokes, but I'm not going to. <laughs> oh, please, go on. <laughs> well... <laughs> it's, uh, it's all about how it interfaces with the wetware. The what? <laughs> People refer to the brain as as wetware because it's it's you know it's <laughs> tissue. Okay, uh, I'll take the word on that one. <laughs> I'm done. That that's all the the where words I know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good job. You did it. Uh, what were we talking about theoretical physics, <laughs> right? All right. So we were talking about how. Ultimate reality is non-empirical and that when a particle is in a vacuum, it becomes a wave and the wave spreads out in space. And when it's a wave, it's actually nowhere. It is in a state of probability to find it. And when you observe it, you collapse this state. So you're perceiving that particle as being in a certain place. You're cre making it be in a certain place. Mm -hmm. Um. But then he goes on to say that they're, they're still real when they're a wave because their potentialities 
of where they might be based on these probabilities. Mm -hmm. And so this is how he justifies the statement that they are real but not empirical. Yeah, I don't know if I entirely understand it. What do, you, what do you what do you what does he mean by empirical? Is that is that kind of go to the the you can't measure it thing? Exactly. Yeah, I think um, this is something that Richard Feynman worked on a lot too. There's this thing called a, a Feynman diagram that uh, if you want to calculate what a particle or a pair of particles is doing, you kind of have to calculate every possible path and interaction, including things like emitting virtual particles that don't really exist and then you know <laughs> coming back together and and stuff splitting in it could be like arbitrarily complex but if you actually uh do out all of that and kind of average it out you get the right the right answer for what things things do yeah the uh the sum over paths theorem is that what that is yeah which is the same as saying that for a particle to move from one location to another that the way that you find what the most direct path is is that you have that particle travel in every possible path uh, as you were describing that eventually leads to mm -hmm. the second place and that the average of all of those courses is the most direct course mm -hmm. and not, not only is this a mathematical thing that you can do but that fundamentally according to this theory, that is what happens every time anything ever happens. Yeah, and if you think about the just the massive amount of complexity that's that's creating <laughs> beyond just the massive amount of complexity that we can already perceive in the universe, it's just truly, truly beyond anything we can hold in our heads. Yeah, like almost by definition. <laughs> 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 so he goes on and talks about how um, uses this analogy that a molecule is like a mountain range and it's filled with steps and each step rep represents a quantum of energy. It's a quantum state, he says. A molecule stands on one of these steps, then all the other steps, infinitely many of them, are empty. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean... I. It's kind of like the electron thing, right? Where if if an electron is not in an orbital, the the orbital, like if it's not in an excited state, say it's like a hydrogen atom where there's only one, uh, mm. there's only one electron, mm -hmm. um, then like all the upper orbitals aren't aren't occupied. But if that electron gets excited, then it could still, it, those those other orbitals are still there for it to jump up to. That's kind of what he's saying, right? Uh, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> That's interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard about that, but that that sounds like it fits in. Yeah. Well, if a uh, if an electron like absorbs a photon, it can jump up to a higher, oh. higher orbital. Wow. And then it, if it emits it's a if it emits a photon, it can it can, uh, jump back down. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. That's uh. That's how uh. We can see spectra of stars. Hmm. Is because of the. Um, and I think that's why things, uh, why things glow when they have heat, because the the, uh, the the electrons and the atoms get excited, and then uh, when they uh, drop back down, they they emit photons as as light energy. Oh. wow, that's fascinating. 
Yeah, and, and so so he brings this in kind of as background to say that when a molecule stands on one of these states, all the other states still exist, but you can't see them. He says, they're empty. There's nothing there to see, but they exist. They exist as part of the logical constitution of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, again, it, it's kind of going back to the every possibility has the potential to happen, even if it's even if it's really small, right? There's always the possibility of, of these other states. Yeah. Um, but he's kind of saying that there's not just the possibility that they actually exist, they're just empty, right? Yeah, he's saying that, as far as I can understand it, it's like saying that there's like a series of boxes and in one of the boxes you will find the electron but once you found it there you know that the other boxes are still there that it could be in um, but not when you have it in this one when you have it in this one you know that the boxes the other boxes are empty but the boxes are still there mm -hmm. which it's kind of an interesting idea to me I, I don't understand how he comes to that exactly I mean, I mean isn't it kind of the same thing where the the position of a particle isn't determined until it's measured it's it's a distribution of probabilities and it could be said to exist in in all the states at at once yeah but, but what i thought he was saying was that once you've perceived it as being in a particular state then the other possible states exist that's the the tricky thing is like almost as like if, well if you were to take it in bits of information and you were to have a series of zeros and one of those zeros is going to be a one then even when you have that one that the rest of them are still zeros and it's not like just a blank it's a it's a it's a zero yeah like there's there's some presence there presence or yeah that's the question presence or like yeah. concerted absence if that has any sort of meaning <laughs> yeah i mean it, again it gets to what we mean by exist and presence and absence and i'm i'm suspicious that this is another instance of of us wanting to assign words to things that don't necessarily map onto them mm -hmm. <laughs> like we're we're kind of bringing our hands about about what it, what exists and what uh whether whether these these empty states can quote be said to exist, I I, I definitely accept that there may be a, a meaningful answer to that. Mm. Um, that could be that they do do exist, but I'm I'm skeptical. Maybe this helps us understand. He says they exist as part of the logical constitution of the system. What do you think that means? Well, I think I think he's saying in order for the system to be able to exist and function at all without falling apart that it has to have those those possible components otherwise it would it would it would be stuck in one state forever interesting right if it didn't have the possibility logically it would it would just be stuck wow so so could a framework like this then show that there is a meaningful concept of nothingness uh well, I think it would kind of say the opposite if it's if it's true, because even the even the even the absence uh, isn't nothingness; it, it exists. 
<laughs> but does it? <laughs> does the existence of absence imply nothing? Is <laughs> something? <laughs> Find out in our next episode. <laughs> you win the cake. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is slightly off topic but um do you know about how like bill clinton during the mona Lewinsky scandal there was this huge thing about what the word the meaning of the word is is oh no <laughs> really <laughs> i forget where i saw it, but i saw someone uh <laughs> saying like you can tell white dudes are in real hot water when they start breaking out the philosophical or philosophical bullshit <laughs> Well, shit. <laughs> We're not in that situation. <laughs> I think we might be in trouble. Maybe. Oh, yeah. And so he says that atoms and molecules can make quantum jumps because they have those empty spaces they can jump into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like I was saying with, with the electrons. We're almost to the part where he starts talking about mind, right? Yeah. And so he kind of ties in number three and four together. So number three is the wholeness of the universe. So he starts by saying, we don't really know what is going on in a non-empirical world. The only thing we have indications of is that it is something wave-like. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the best we can do. We can't really pin it down any more than that. Yeah. What, what was the exact used again the only thing we have indications of is that it is something wave-like oh but before that it was like one of the, the... We, we don't really know what is going on in a non-empirical world the only thing we have any indication of is that it is something wave-like mm -hmm. yeah because our whole our whole science is is uh based on and tied up in empirical observations and that kind of thing and yeah, yeah to, to be able to justify anything, we feel like we need to have some kind of empirical basis for it. Yeah, which makes this pretty tricky to talk about in a meaningful sense as far as our scientific community goes. Mm -hmm. But I, I, think, I think that's changing. I think people are starting to em embrace these concepts as being meaningful, even if they're not something that is directly observable. Yeah, this is something Sean Carroll talks a lot about, which is that for a long time after quantum physics first were proposed and, and discovered that people kind of shoved aside the actual implications of them, like whether it was many worlds or mm. or the Copenhagen interpretation where there's there's one kind of collapse that happens and because they, they can kind of get into this whole metaphysical circular debate and and that kind of gives it the appearance of not being important or significant. But <laughs> these, these are like real questions that if, if we are able to get answers to them, it, it would be really profound. Yeah, there's kind of a couple moments in this interview where the interviewer kind of pokes fun at Schaefer saying, oh, this is in line with like what spiritual like hippies say. And, mm -hmm. and, and then Schaefer kind of responds like, well, that, so what? Doesn't doesn't mean they're right. It just means that this is right. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think he called it New Age or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so he says it's not material it's like a pattern it's a form it's information yeah and and I think this theory has been around for a while that the universe in some sense is just this gigantic computation that's happening. Yeah. Like a very complex computation in, in a very pure form. And this is already tying into the, the number four characteristic. So he goes on and says, uh, the interviewer asks him, is it information for a cosmic mind? And he responds that there's something strange about atoms in physics. When we make a measurement, it makes sense because the instruments are connected with the known background. Right, and 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 this kind of gets back to the, we feel like there always needs to be a lowest level or something to refer to, and that level might just not be there in the sense that we think it should be there. Yeah, definitely. This this is a an idea I've played with in the past and in fact the string quintet that i wrote in sophomore year of of music school was inspired by this idea it was titled from fireflies to thunderstorms and um, it was kind of inspired by the idea of seeing each of these phenomena and well, they're so drastically different things. One's a bug and one's an electrical discharge that within the context of the, of the background of, of darkness, of blackness, that they have something that connects them that can be seen as being almost the same. Yeah, yeah, because you can't define the, the stars without the the blackness that surrounds them exactly yeah although in that case i feel like that is kind of implying a background in, in the it? case of the the stars and the fireflies yeah exactly yeah. it is and so what we're talking about here is a situation where there is no background and so that it doesn't make sense to talk about it in the same way Mm -hmm. but then he goes on and proposes something different he says the background of matter is mind-like the background of matter is mind and everything visible comes out of it mm -hmm. yeah and i wonder i just wonder how literal he's being with the word mind and he does he does say mind-like <laughs> and yeah what, what do you think he means by mind-like so he talks about how mind-like, to him, it seems to mean the structure, as we were talking about before, it, that it has order, that it's lawful, mm -hmm. that it, it follows logic. That That is what he defines as being mind-like. Yeah, and at its root, it's basically just math. Mm -hmm. um, now he says that if you accept that the background of the universe is mind-like, then that also leads to a wholeness because the elements are thought-like and so they're hanging together like the thoughts in our own minds. Yeah, I think that's just really beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, it's tempting to, to go to the whole where just thoughts in the mind of God or something like that. 
uh-huh. which could 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 be a, I mean an okay metaphorical way to think about things. Mm-hmm. And you know, not not God like big sky daddy, but God just being <laughs> the word for the entire universe. Yeah. Well, also that that's like one of the points where he was getting teased about religion, like saying that yes this statement is not incongruous with religion but that doesn't mean that he embraces the religion yeah i wonder i wonder if this is one of those things that in a thousand years people will just just think wow how could how could they have been that far off about all this stuff (laughs) (laughs) i don't i mean i don't think we're we're too far off on the on the you know, definitely at the level of, of chemistry and how atoms and and quarks work. I think that kind of thing mm. is probably pretty pretty solidly figured out. But but all this kind of uh, what what's at the bottom or or root of reality and what's uh, what exists and that kind of thing. I wonder if we'll have made any progress on it or if it'll still just be kind of a, a clusterfuck. Mm. I wonder if if we're around in a thousand years, which is. <laughs> What do you think? Is our world fundamentally lawful? I mean, since it has order, I think it has to be. Interesting, but isn't isn't order an emergent property of chaos? Um <laughs> so as I understand it, you have things happening. Let's say you're flipping a coin a billion times and our human minds kind of tend to predict there have been studies that uh, when someone's given the task, try to recreate 20 coin flips in a row, we're kind of disinclined to put a bunch of heads or a bunch of tails right in a row to the point where our patterns become much less random than if you actually flip the coin. And when you do flip the coin, you'll find that there's quite often series of patterns that line up. You know, you get heads, 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 and that's pretty common. And that the more coin flips you have, the higher likelihood that a longer series of of, of that pattern emerges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, I think even if it's chaotic, I, I think chaos, like the whole chaos theory thing is that from from very well part of it is from very simple rules you get this this unpredictable series of, of events like the weather right it's it's obeying the rules are, are relatively simple to describe but the complexity that mm-hmm. they create kind of defies the ability to actually predict things because even if even if the you know the universe is chaotic and there's particles moving around everywhere there's still rules that that govern how they interact when they when they do interact it's not just mm-hmm like some random shit happens every time there's two particles that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that interact. Yeah. As far as we know. (laughs) Well, I I think it would be, I think it would be obvious if it was was totally random because we wouldn't have chairs or, or humans or stars or planets. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's definitely some element of predictability there, but is there also, couldn't you say that there's an element of, not predictability as well like there's some things that you don't know what will happen yeah but that's just like the uh 
well one it's the limitations of our, our, our of our ability to just the, the limitations of our intelligence and there also might be some uh you know uh non-deterministic effects of, of quantum mechanics but that's that's not that's not the same thing as being completely random i don't think because even the even the randomness obeys uh a probability distribution again it's not it's not like everything has an equal probability it's that certain things have a greater probability hmm. than others. but uh, maybe i'm playing the devil's advocate or maybe i'm not um <laughs> it's totally random yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. um as i understand it since since every object in the universe uh can be represented as a complex waveform like the aggregate of the waves that make it up that there is a real although astronomically small possibility that weird random unexpected things could happen like out all the atoms that make up your body could simultaneously disappear and reappear in a random location in space like there is a probability that that will happen even if it happens to be very remote and maybe the remoteness of that probability is only an artifact of being in a world that through chance, through having an infinite number of coin flips, eventually created a, an emergent stable pattern that makes it so those things are really unlikely to happen. Huh. So how, how do you think it, how do you think it got that way again? I think you kind of touched on it at the end there but like how do we end up in this in this world where or there are are recurrent patterns like that well because because in this universe it seems that we do have infinite coin flips or in the multiverse or whatever uh that that is to say infinite occurrences of things just happening and if you have that for long enough you start to get patterns that just happen to allied with each other and make the appearance of being a stable system but in fact that's just uh, an illusion that has happened due to existing for so many iterations yeah yeah and, and it could be i don't know if this is exactly right the right term for it but but existence bias like have have you heard of a Boltzmann brain? Tell me. <laughs> so that's this idea that uh uh kind of like we were talking about with with experiencing every possibility in the the wave function. Mm-hmm. Just it's we're perceiving this one as continuous because it has continuity or like everything uh yeah. you know <laughs> proceeds from moment to moment with with obeying, you know, what seem to be simple rules and and it all kind of connects, but the uh, Boltzmann brain is the idea that we could just be this extremely unlikely fraction of a second occurrence of all these particles coming together in the universe to form this experience very briefly mm. and then like splitting apart again yeah <laughs> and, we, and we would have no way of knowing mm-hmm. definitely and and, and this yeah. is again the same thing we were talking about in our second episode that we published the time episode because at that time we were talking about time as being the illusion where a sequence of events just sort of happen in order and we were wondering about that like how is there like let, let, let's say that 
we have that Boltzmann brain and just random things are happening moment to moment to moment to moment uh, with no continuity. But then why do we have the perception of continuity from one instant to another? Why do we have this appearance that things exist over the course of time? Right, right, right. And maybe that's just because it, it, it happens to appear that way. Yeah, and, and we can only only experience an inf- infinitesimal moment at a time. We can't we can't have a bigger perspective on, on what's actually happening. We're just, we're limited to the actual perceptual present. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that you can't think about too hard, or else you might lose yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so he he posits that there's a lawful world, and I I kind of de- disagree on him for the reasons that I've that we've just talked about, or mm-hmm. or you could you could maybe see it in a dualistic sense. You could see that this world has elements of chaos and elements of lawfulness. Mm-hmm. Again, I think I don't think chaos and lawfulness are exclusive, or chaos <clears throat> they're they're not they're not opposed. Certainly, I think the the chaos just implies that you can't predict it. Hmm. Even if you have, even if you have the laws. Interesting. And I, I think that it does kind of rely heavily on our, our on our human limitations to predict things. But yeah, I don't I don't know for sure. That's, that's a good. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, be, because maybe the the lawfulness is an emergent property of the chaos, and therefore only uh, an illusion. Or maybe not. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we humans do like to see see patterns and things. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe we're just <laughs> all these rules are just like pat- yeah patterns that aren't aren't really there. But on the, like on the on the grandest scale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they, maybe they're not there on the grandest scale, but they appear to be here now, and so we can find meaning in that. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're getting the Shakespeare and, and the all the monkeys typing on the the typewriters. <laughs> yeah. So he is tying together the interconnectedness and the mind-like elements of ultimate reality by he says if it is thoughts that hang together, so there is wholeness. Then it is also not viable because you can't see my thoughts you can't see the thoughts of the universe and so on this is like what we were talking about earlier in the Mm -hmm. episode and and i thought there's this funny little exchange at the end where uh the interviewer says so are you saying that the fundamental level of reality is thoughts and schaefer says you could say that and the interviewer says, I don't, I'm not the one who's saying that. Are you saying that? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm willing to say it. At the fundamental basis of things, they are not things. They are patterns. They are thoughts. They are forms. Thoughts are in a cosmic mind, he says. Yeah, yeah, that goes back to the, the mind of God kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, with, with the very loose definition of God. But I also think, He's kind of playing fast and loose with the the word thought hmm. and what what that actually means. How so? Well, because because thoughts are these things 
these experiences that we have because of our our human brains mm. and it, it might be again it's it's you know I, I don't think he's saying it's exactly like that he's saying it's it's similar right because whatever it is is way more abstract right yeah the ideological landscape as i like to put it the the conceptual as opposed to the physical yeah (laughs) (laughs) so these thoughts brought to you by the universe (laughs) (laughs) somehow that's oddly comforting maybe that's why people like religion I mean, it connects to the free will thing for me, which I, I do find comforting in a way. Hmm. Interesting. You guys will have to check out our free will episode on that. We're not getting into that again here. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, man. <laughs> Bruh. This is some mind-bending Dude. shit. Some mind shit. Shit mind. I don't know.